welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Someone say amen again. She has more courage than many of us, doesn't she? And the pipes to back up that courage. Continue to sing for the Lord. Uh, I'm going to move this songbook, and quite frankly, after listening to Elder LeBlanc's message, I'm not sure that we need to continue. Uh, that was quite a sermonette that he gave, wasn't it? He was talking about prayer, how important prayer is, and then he gave some statistical proof of the importance of prayer. So I guess I'll go ahead and speak, but before I do, I want to pray again. Is that okay? Father, once again, I kneel before you with my friends and family. And Lord, we're asking for another portion of your spirit. We ask that you would open our minds right now and open our hearts, that we may be able to receive the word that you have for us. Father, I ask that, again, you would put your words on my lips. And, Father, I have to ask you for forgiveness of my sins. And please forgive the sins of my friends as well. Father, while our righteousness is as filthy rags, yours is pure. Your righteousness is pure. And so, Lord, you said that you would... Clothe us in your righteousness. And that, of course, is the whole purpose of your son coming, living a perfect life, dying and resurrecting so that we could live. So I ask that you would hide us behind your throne of grace this morning and forever. In the name of Yeshua, amen. You may hear me use the term Yeshua. It's just the Hebrew name of Jesus. We're praying to the same God. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. You're in the right church. I'm very glad to be a part of the family of God. How about you? You know, uh, being a part of the family of God means that you have a parent. By the way, is it okay if I walk around just a little bit, guys? Is that okay? I probably won't do it too much, but okay. Uh being a part of a family means that you have parents, and you and I have a father, a heavenly father, isn't that right? And you know, parents have this becoming gift of giving gifts to their children, and most of us tend to like gifts, don't we? What gifts has the father bestowed upon you? What talents has he given to you? What responsibilities has he given to you? 
What mission field has he given into your hands? The current mission that God has given me is to encourage this church to be a studious people. Is that okay? You're welcome to say amen this morning. I may ask you some questions. You're welcome to reverently respond. It's okay to reverently speak in church. I know some of you are so reverent that you don't speak at all in church about worldly things, but about spiritual things, it's okay. Uh, God has given me the responsibility or the mission to ask us to be a studious people. Beloved, study your Bible. Read the Word of God. Don't read the Word of God, study the Word of God. Does that make sense? Don't study the word of God like the devil, though. Did you know the devil studied the word of God? That's why he's so good at going against the word of God, because he studied it. But you know what he did wrong? I see the wheels turning. I'll tell you. He did not prayerfully study the word of God. Yep. He did not humbly study the word of God. He studied it with pride and pomp, and he did not study it at the foot of the master. So let's not study just to absorb information or knowledge. Let us have a mind that will receive the spirit as well as the truth. Today's message is entitled, The Immortal Gardener and His Fallow Ground. The Immortal Gardener and His Fallow Ground. The whole natural world is designed to be an interpreter of the way of God. The whole natural world is designed to be an interpreter of the way of God. You might say religion, the religion of God. How many students do we have in the congregation today? Raise your hand if you're a student. Students, students. All right, excellent. Well, young and old students, that's what we like to see. Um, let's ask someone, uh, tell me your favorite subject. One of the youth, tell me your favorite subject. What was that? Science. Anything else? What was that? <laughs> Calculus, all right. Sociology. History, okay. English, that's my friend right there. All right. Did you know that all of these subjects reflect God? Yeah, they do. They have the name of God written on them. My wife happens to like the science of biology. I heard someone say science. And uh, biology and anatomy. And she's always going on about how God's word is written inside of anatomy. You can see the divine design in the human body. That's what she says. Somebody else says that that's correct. Okay. So the word of God is written in nature. You can also see nature in calculus. Raise your hand. Who said calculus? Raise your hand. Brother Mark. Okay. I should have known that. Yes, you can see the hand and the name of God written in mathematics. 
you see, when you study mathematics, you see the creators, you see the creator as a logician. You see his line of reasoning. You see his quantitative logic in mathematics. There's even numerous divine algebraic equations inside of the Bible. Algebraic equations help to simplify. You remember that term in school? Simplification, simplify. They help us to simplify the word and the way of God. So yes, the creator is in calculus, very much so. In fact, if you were to turn to Daniel 8, verse 13, I'm not asking you to turn there, but you're willing to do so, you'll notice that this is dealing with the 2300-day prophecy, you'll notice that there is a particular term. The term is certain saint. Certain saint. And there is a certain saint in that book, in that chapter, that deals with numbers. Did you know that God had a personal mathematician? Yeah, an angel of mathematics. So the next time you're working on algebra or calculus, you might want to dial God up and ask him for assistance. Oh, yes, we deal with a personal God. He's very interested in you doing well in your work in scholastic studies. Mm -hmm. yeah. God's glory in the heavens... The innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions, the balancings of clouds, as it is written in Job 37, 16, the mysteries of light and sound, of day and night, all of these were objects of study in the first school with the first students. Turn with me in your Bibles now to Genesis the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 2. When I, first gave, when I gave my first Bible study, I asked my series of Bible studies, I asked my pop, pop, what should I study about? And he said, it's always good to begin at the beginning. So today we're going to begin at the beginning, the book of Genesis chapter 2. We took a look at chapter 1 in the scripture reading today, and we'll come back to that later. But right now, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2, and I'll read for you verses 7 and 8. And the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Let's Stop right there for a moment. I told you that my mission is to encourage you all to encourage us to be a studious people, to prayerfully study the Word of God day after day. You don't have to have the Bible, a book on you, by the way, to study. You can keep it in your mind and reflect on it as you go throughout your day. You might want to take a pocket notebook or your iPod and use the notes there because the Lord will speak to you as you pray to him. He's very communicative when you talk to him about his word. If you want prayers answered rather quickly, all you have to do is repent of your sins, and he will answer that prayer very fast. 
All you have to do is ask him, Lord, please explain to me what you're trying to tell me in your word. And he will answer that prayer very, very quickly. Notice something interesting here. Whenever you study the Bible, try not to leave any stone unturned. The Bible says that God breathed. Hmm. He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. That's interesting. I think it's interesting. Uh, there is a breath of life. In other words, there is life, and from the source of life comes breath. And if one receives this breath, they also receive life. Hmm. Second Timothy, Second Timothy three sixteen says something interesting. Uh, if I recall correctly, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration. Do you guys remember that? All Scripture is given by inspiration. Hmm. Did you know that word inspiration, inspire, inspiration, is breathe? So that we could read that part of the verse and say, say that God breathed the word. That all scripture is God breathed. So if in Genesis 2 it says God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, then it will follow, considering 2 Timothy 3.16, that if one studies the scriptures, God will breathe on him and breathe into his nostrils again the breath of eternal life. Did you know that the word of God was a living word? It can make you wise until salvation. Yeah, very interesting to me. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 said, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he formed. So this is in the very beginning. And in the very beginning, you notice that the Lord God is a gardener. He planted something. He planted a garden. And he also planted a man in the garden. Very interesting. God is into planting. There are many object lessons in gardens. Beloved, we would do well to turn aside as often as we can and just sit in a garden because the things which the Creator has made reflect Him. And He can teach us through His natural world, not just in calculus, but also by the birds and the trees and the waters. So get out in nature as much as you can. If you look at chapter 3, you'll see one of these object lessons which nature teaches us. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says here, And unto Adam he said, and you understand this is after they fell, after they sinned, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, 
and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. Hmm. So, clearly, disobedience to God brought forth a curse. Disobedience to God brought forth a curse. There are some that say that it was Adam's lack of faith, really, at its root, that brought forth this curse, because his lack of faith in God produced the disobedience. That is to say that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we must have faith. The just shall live by faith, in fact. And you want to be just, don't you? Just shall live by faith. So disobedience caused some traumatic changes. Let's learn the lesson here. Not having faith in God, doubting that God can keep you from falling, causes disobedience, which causes some traumatic effects. Notice some of the effects here. Thorns and thistles were going to grow. Apparently, there were no thorns and no thistles before Adam sinned. I can only imagine how it must have been not ever seeing a thorn or a thistle in a garden, and then all of a sudden, you do something that was cross-averse, and you're planting, you're gardening, you're tilling the ground, and oof, ouch. They had never experienced that before. That's a traumatic experience. The first time that you experience being pricked by some bush, by some plant, it hurts. So something traumatic happened. Thorns and thistles grew. Back up, though. In verse 17, towards the end, it says, Thou shalt not, excuse me, it says, Cursed is the ground. So the ground was cursed because Adam lacked faith and fell into disobedience. The ground was cursed. Now, what did the ground do? Poor little dirt just sitting there minding its own business, and here Adam has to sin, and now the ground is cursed. Did you know that the things you and I do have an impact on the beautiful animals of God's world? and the trees, and the plants? Shouldn't we as Christians who profess to be loving take care of the plants and animals? And should we not take care of each other? I think God is trying to teach us something very important, a number of things, by using the object lessons found in gardens. Here, you see the judgment of God in the very beginning, an illustration of his judgment. Disobedience causes a judgment. But you also see the mercy of God here. Did you see it? Let's take another look. He says, cursed is the ground for what? For thy sake. Yeah, Adam, for Adam's sake, not just Adam, you and I too, 
The ground was cursed for our sake. How is that? Because it has so many tremendous object lessons that illustrate God's plan of salvation. It's interesting that a lot of times we humans refer to gardens as sanctuaries. Isn't that right? And sanctuaries and gardens correspond to the plan and illustrate the plan of salvation. So when you see a garden, study it. Ask the Lord to teach you about the flowers, the trees, to teach you about the birds, the bees. Yes, the birds and the bees. Because there are many life lessons that he can teach us in the garden. Let's see if we can find a few of them here. Uh, but before I, we continue, I want to ask you a question. What happens when you leave a garden unattended? Oh, weeds, death, decay. Yeah. So that it's not good for us to leave the garden alone. Notice that God tells Adam, you're going to work in the garden. You're still going to work in the garden. So he has to keep the garden. Adam and Eve do have to keep the garden. Because if you don't keep the garden, the garden grows weeds. And weeds are bad. Weeds are very bad. When God created the garden, beloved, it was very good. But when sin entered, it was not so good. When sin entered into the garden, there were thorns and thistles and weeds, as you have just said, and hence it needed a gardener. Sin means we need a gardener. We especially need a gardener. When man sinned, he no longer, or I should say when God initially created man, man was created in the image of God. Amen. Somebody's quoting it. But after sin, God, the man no longer perfectly reflected God's image. So guess what man needed? Yeah. That's right, Brother Mike. God needed, or man needed a gardener. Did you know that you need a gardener? Did you know that you were a garden? Yes. Gardens after the fall are a type of man and the gardening process illustrates the matchless charms of Christ and his plan of salvation. Turn to me with, to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah, very good book. Jeremiah chapter 4, and I want to read to you verses 3 and 4. You are a gardener. Uh, excuse me, you are a garden in need of a gardener. The Bible says here in Jeremiah 4, 3 and 4, Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, a little context here. Uh, Jerusalem and Judah are being threatened right now. Their safety is being threatened. They're about to be invaded. You see, God chose the Israelites because they were the least. And he wanted to show how much he could do with the least or the so-called lowest of people. Those who had the least. And we should take comfort in that because that means that God can take, no matter who you are or what you have done, he can take the least of you and do the most through the least. So that's the context here. It says, for, the Lord, for thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, 
Break up your what? Your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and burn, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, some people have trouble with certain scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, because it sounds like God's being mean. See, beloved, the fire of God is not a vindictive expression of his anger. Quite the contrary. The fire of God is indicative of his love. You see, my heart burns for Kenesha, you understand? And my mother said amen very loudly there. Yeah, so fire, the poets all know, often represents or illustrates or is a type or symbol of love, whether it's man's love or, in this case, God's love. If we would just understand the symbolism of the garden throughout the Bible, the sanctuary throughout the Bible, we would not come up with erroneous doctrines like God is going to torture men forever in hell. And some of you here may not be Seventh-day Adventists, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I care about you, and so does God, and that's why we're telling you here what thus saith the Lord. You see, thus saith the Lord, only the righteous will burn forever. Nobody believes me. I don't have time to go there because you guys are going to run me out of here pretty soon. But if you would research for yourself Isaiah 33, 14, I think you will find that I'm actually not exaggerating. Isaiah 33, 14 says something like, uh, who, and you have to read verse 15 as well, who will dwell in the everlasting burnings? Something like that. And then the following verse says, the good people. It says, those who are going to be with the Lord. I believe the exact words are, the righteous will. So you see, only the righteous will burn forever. By the way, human beings were never made to burn. Hell fire, as we refer to it as, was made for the devil and his angels exclusively. And they didn't have to burn either. You see, God takes no pleasure even in the death of the wicked. But because God is eternal and we are not, Someone has to go and it cannot be God. But it doesn't have to be us either. Praise the Lord. Yes, the righteous will burn forever because you see the unrighteous can't take the love of God. It's too hot. The love of God is too impassioned. It's too strong. It has too much teeth in it. Yeah, too much teeth. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth, it does. The love of God has too much teeth for the wicked to exist in it. But the righteous love the love of God, and they can exist in it eternally, face to face. So here you see that the prophet Hosea, well, Hosea as well, but here the prophet Jeremiah knows that God views you as a garden. Did you see that in verse 3? Break up your fallow ground. This is garden speech gardener's speech, and sow not among thorns. What does sow mean? 
plant, right? Cast seed. So, it says, sow not among thorns. I wonder what that means. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. By the way, what is fallow ground, you might ask? Yes, untilled. That's what fallow ground is. Thank you. Matthew chapter 13. It is ground that is untilled. It hasn't been maintained. It's wild, unkept. Matthew chapter 13. Here is a parable from the master, who, which you all are familiar with. I want to start in verse 3, and we'll continue probably to verse 9. Verse 9. Matthew 13, 3. And he spake, speaking of the master, many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Now, the term wayside is actually one word which, which means way. That's what it actually means. So it says that some seeds really fell by the way. Who, who is the way? He is the way. Jesus is the way. Some seeds fell by Jesus. You see, um, we're going to find out this is not good. I guess when you and I look at people and they're by Jesus, it seems pretty good to us. I might look at myself and I feel like I'm by Jesus. That might be good for me, but uh, Christ says we need to be in him. Yes, in Jesus. Yes. Let us continue. Verse 5. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Have mercy. This is interesting. Some seeds fell on stony ground, and apparently when there's not a lot of depth to the ground, and some of you are gardeners, so you know this is true, when there's not a lot of depth to the soil, the plant or whatever you are throwing out, what type of seeds you are throwing out, springs up very quickly because there's no deepness of root. Study to show thyself approved before God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed, lately dividing the word of truth. Uh, do not have a topical review of Scripture. Don't just read the Bible because uh, you're supposed to. And when you do read the Bible, which you probably should never do, you should probably always study it, but don't just read it like a comic book. Do not read it like a simple novel. You see, we just said earlier that the Word of God is life. The Word of God is God-breathed. In other words, God breathed the Word, and the Word has life because God breathed it, and God is life. This is something that Lucifer did not understand, apparently, that the source of all life is God. 
That is to say that one cannot do his own thing apart from God, averse to the cross, and continue living. It's impossible. It's like being born without having a mother. Stony places. Some of us have a very, how do you say, uh, surface relationship with God. Surface, yeah. Let us not have a surface relationship or correspondence with God. There must be depth to your relationship with God. Did you hear Brother LeBlanc speaking about prayer? I can read this book all day long and not have depth. It's good to read the book. But you must also pray as you read the book. Because when you prayerfully study the Bible, then God will breathe on you. You will have the Holy Spirit, in other words. God breathes. Verse 6. And when the sun was, oh, excuse me, we read that. When the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. Notice verse 7. Some fell among thorns, and thorns sprung up and choked them. Choked them, yes, choked them. Hmm. Uh, Do you remember in the beginning it said that Thorns and thistles shall grow. Hmm. Must be some kind of correlation there. Some fell among thorns. So some of these seeds fell among thorns. What do thorns grow on? Weeds? Do they grow? Roses. Hmm. I like that. Thorns grow on roses. Huh. Now, somebody told me, Charles, you should buy roses for your mother. And I said, yeah, that sounds right, because, you know, roses are loving and all of these types of things. But they have thorns. But they're very beautiful, yes. Very beautiful indeed. But they have thorns. One of my brothers here at the church was telling me, Brother Charles, you know, we have to be nice to one another. I said, what do you mean? Why are you saying we have to be nice? We're mean. I said, if we were nicer to one another, more people would like to be around us. I wonder if we are thorny roses. Beautiful smiles on our faces. Beautiful clothing on our backs. But not forgiving. Not long-suffering. Not patient. Not kind. Thorny ground. It doesn't stop there. In verse number eight, oh, by the way, the thorny the thorns choke them up, choke up the seeds. Have mercy. Uh, let's not allow any blood to be on our hand from choking out beautiful seeds with potential. Thorns can be a number of things. Those thorns can be doctrines, doctrines that sound good but are erroneous. Sometimes that can be thorny too. We have to be guarded. Verse number eight said, But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who have ears to hear, let him hear. Who have ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now, who is the sower or the gardener here? Yeah. He's the gardener, right? Now, I have to tell you, sometimes I wonder about God's methodology. Don't you? For example, why did he bother planting on stony ground? Or thorny ground? If it were me, I would plant on the good ground and maybe by the wayside, because at least you would think that has a chance. But he planted all over the place. Somebody said, amen, that God planted seeds all over the place. Yeah, okay, I see where you're coming from. So if God plants seeds everywhere, that means by we can be changed. Um, some are thorny ground hearers, Oh, I forgot one illustration about the thorny ground. You know, something about thorny plants. The thorns are there as defenses. They are defense mechanisms. Uh, cacti, is that how you say it, cacti? Cactus plant, build, they form a natural hedge. They can do that. There's some other plants, bushes, that have thorns on them that form a natural hedge, kind of sometimes around a natural, you know, garden, something that's not really man-made or particularly kept up. It protects, but it protects itself. You see, thorny ground hearers protect self. We can be thorns that push people away, yes, but we can also be thorns pushing away the truth of God. Because we are defending ourselves, our personal opinions. When someone says to you when discussing scripture, well, I think or I feel, buyer beware. Because, quite frankly, beloved, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what thus saith the Lord. Because God breathed. God breathed. But there was some good ground here. Now, this is something you have to pay very close attention. The ground was good because of the seed and not the other way around. You see, none of us, all of us fall into the first four categories. We are either by the way stony places, or thorny ground. There is none good, not even one. Only God is good. So the seed, however, the seed can turn the previous four bad situations into good ground. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And while you're turning there, what was the name of the garden in, uh, uh, in Genesis? Eden. Did you know the word? Anybody know what the word Eden means? Beautiful place, right? We associate it with beauty. It's uh, Eden was a paradise. 
Notice Revelation 2, verse 7. You all doing okay right now? And God said, by the way, when, when someone gets up before you to speak, you should always pray that the Lord puts his words in his mouth. Because if you don't, no telling what I might say. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. I'll play it safe and read the Bible. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Oh, we heard, read that before. What the Spirit saith unto the churches. The context here in Revelation chapter 2, of course, is messages to each of the churches that God has. Revelation 2, 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I grant to eat of the what, beloved? Tree of life, which is where? Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, hmm. There must be some kind of connection to the garden in Genesis and the garden of paradise in heaven. Yes, Perhaps the same thing. Yeah. You remember there was a tree of life in the midst of the garden in Eden in Genesis. Yeah. Same thing here. Interesting. There are principles to follow when you study the scriptures. One of those principles, rules, guidelines that can be supported by scripture itself, one of those rules is repeat and enlarge. Repeat and enlarge. Here you see that principle coming into view. You see it all over the place in scripture. Uh, question for you. Well, before I get to the question, you remember in Psalms 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, again, the natural world is designed to be the interpreter of the glory of God. Now, if you study the Exodus, you'll notice that the glory of God is associated with the fruits of the Spirit as well as the law of God. Because when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God responded to Moses by telling him that he's long-suffering, patient, has tremendous mercy. Uh, he said he's full of goodness. This is right after Moses asked him to show him his glory. This is what God said. And then he turns around and gives the great Ten Commandments. So there is a correlation between the glory of God and the fruits of the Spirit and the moral law. In other words, we always say that the moral law is a transcription of Christ's character. Which is, that is Christ's character, the glory of God, along with the fruits of the Spirit. So the heavens declare the glory, or character, we could say, of God. But notice that, uh, well, let me ask you, do you think the glory of God was in the garden in Genesis? Somebody, yeah, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The glory of God was in the garden in Genesis. That is, God's character was in the Garden of Eden. God's character was in the Garden of Eden. Hmm. So the heavens and the glory and the garden reflect God's character. Now, let me ask you this question. 
Who were the first beings to be cut off from the garden? Adam and Eve, I heard. Any other thoughts? Satan. Who said Satan? Okay, Sister Laura. Some, some others said Satan as well. A little bit of a trick question, Debuff. Sorry about that. The first beings cast out were actually Lucifer and his angels. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. If you were to look at, I won't go there, Ezekiel 28, in verse 13, you remember it says, Thou has been where? In the garden, and eaten the garden of God. That's what, speaking of Lucifer, Ezekiel 28. And uh, so Lucifer and his angels were first cut off from the garden of God. Turn to Genesis 2.15. It's interesting because Lucifer, later on in that same chapter, I believe, is said to be the cherub that covereth. Genesis chapter 2. Lucifer was the cherub that covered. You understand that there is a throne room in God's sanctuary. It is referred to as the most holy place or the holiest of all. And in that most holy place, you have a throne. We call it Call it a mercy seat. And inside of God's throne in heaven, when Lucifer sinned, was God's character. Yes, the commandments of God. So that the commandments of God are the foundation of God's throne, of his government. It's uh, pretty logical. If you go to any country, we can take this country here, the United States. The foundation of this government is its laws. Ask anybody. Uh, when people immigrate into the United States, they often loud the United States because it's a place of freedom, right? And some of those perceived freedoms, which still remain to a degree, certainly more than in certain other places. Those freedoms are there in large part because of the law of the United States of America. There are laws that say that you cannot basically bother other people. In other words, you can't kill folks and get away with it. That's one of the laws. Murder is against the law of the United States. So central or fundamental to the government of the United States is its law. Same thing with God. I have to say, somebody said, the mercy seat. You'll notice that while the law of God is his foundation, God rules from a throne that is entitled mercy. You can say amen to that. <laughs> yeah. So the law is there, and God provides us mercy. So that if one were to break the law, if one comes to repent at the throne of mercy, Hebrews chapter 4, then one can attain mercy. It's very beautiful, quite frankly. I told you to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. 
And here we read, I will put enmity between the, excuse me, actually I want, yes, thank you, 3 verse 15. That was 3 verse 15, wasn't it? I want chapter 2, actually. I know we always do 3. I want chapter 2, verse 15. Notice before the fall, God said, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to do what? To keep it. I told you that there was Lucifer in Ezekiel 28. He was the cherub that covered. The word cover also means to protect. Um, you ever see these famous folks walking around and they have these big guys to either side of them? What are they? Bodyguards. Yes, bodyguards. Now, obviously, God doesn't need a bodyguard, but the job of the cherub that covered was to cover, cover the seat from which the law was under, to uh, protect it. Yeah. It's interesting that one so close to God, set right in the throne room, decided to go against the cross. Did you know... That's the best kind of enemy, the one that knows you so well. But God in his mercy allowed Lucifer to become Satan and to let us see how evil he is so that we will choose of our own free will not to follow him because he does not have the best way. The word here, keep it, in 2.15 is also guard. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to keep it, to protect or guard it. Remember we told you that the garden reflects God's character, like Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They were also, like Lucifer, to keep or protect God's character. Do you want to keep and protect God's character? Pretty good job, wonderful benefits. Job security is there. Okay. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart. There we go again. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. See, beloved, let me make it plain. Your heart is a garden. Your heart is a garden. Your heart is a garden. Now, God wants you to keep that garden. You'll remember that if you don't keep the garden, thorns, thistles, and weeds grow. If you don't keep the natural garden, thorns, thistles, and weeds grow and flourish and eventually take over the good part of the garden. As in the natural, so in the spiritual. If you do not keep your heart, then you'll have overgrowth. There will be weeds that grow inside of the garden of your heart if you do not keep it. Now, who keeps the garden? We said that God is the gardener. So we must entrust the tilling of the grounds of our hearts to the almighty and all-capable God. Now, I want to, you'll remember, we don't have to turn there in Genesis. In fact, you'll, you'll see it in the very previous chapter, in chapter 1. You'll remember that it talked about um, producing seed in itself. You remember that? 
Where was that? Somebody find that for us. Is it verse 11? Yep. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Do you all have another 15 minutes? Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Please give me 15 minutes. So you see here that the herb and the grass yields seed and the trees yield fruit after their what? Hmm. This means that you cannot plant a tomato seed and get a rose. You cannot plant a cabbage and get a lily. I know the scientists are working on it, but naturally it cannot be done. Good to see the, the, the young people laugh, that's nice. Laughing is, is good, does the heart good like medicine. Uh, so you cannot plant in the earthly or natural sense bad seeds, or any seed, uh, orange seed, and get something that is not an orange. So in the natural, so is in the spiritual. We cannot plant seeds of disdain for one another, seeds of unkindness, and expect to get kindness as fruit. We cannot sow seeds of pride and expect to get seeds, a uh, fruit of humility. We cannot plant seeds of disobedience or apathy towards God's word, indifference towards his law, and expect to receive fruits of the spirit, fruits of obedience. Ain't gonna happen. The good news is that God specializes in gardening. So he takes the Israelites, for example, to the promised land, a type of garden, a type of paradise. You do realize that the Canaan land was a replica or a representation, not a replica, a type of heaven, the new earth, the promised land. Both are referred to as the promised land. And so God, however, in order to get them into the promised land, led them out of a land which was not so promising. This is good news for you and I, because it means that no matter how rampant the weeds of, my, of the garden of my heart are, God is interested enough and capable enough to pull out those weeds. But you must submit yourselves to him. But he, he, does, he does the heavy lifting. Take my yoke upon me, upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Study Psalms 119, beloved. 1 Corinthians 3 refers also to witnessing to other people as gardening. That chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, I won't go into detail with it, but witnessing is like gardening. Many of you know that, that uh, the, what does the Bible say? The 
something about laborers or many, the uh, harvest, harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Harvest is right, but the laborers are few. So we need to share God's word with other people. Yeah. How about portions of God's word? Do we share portions? Yeah, if you have time, share portions, sure. Yeah. But when you can, share God's word <laughs> in its entirety. Amen? But first, you must know it for yourself by God's grace. So... Um, God is the gardener. He rakes away the dead leaves. He prunes the overgrowth of thorny plants. But how does he do that? The way he does it is by severing the ties between you and the world. First John 2.15 says, Love not the world, right? Neither the things that are in the world. And then it says something very severe. If any man loveth the world, the love of the Father is where? It's not in him. Wow. That's pretty heavy. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. I'm asking you the question, how does God keep the garden? And we just answered it through scripture. He puts his mind in you. What was that? He... he he abides, in, yes, I abide in you, John 15. He wants us to abide in him so that he can abide in us. Yeah, that's how he does it. Now, we talked about earlier that God has to have certain um, parameters met before he can exist in a place. And this is why he prunes and cleans us to prepare us for translation, to prepare our gardens, our hearts, to enter into the kingdom of God. This is a wonderful work that he does. We should not sneeze at it. As in the natural, so in the spiritual. I have to show you Psalms 119, just a couple of verses here. Where is Psalms? Psalms 119. A familiar chapter, mainly because of its length. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of goodies in here as well. Psalms 119. Let's start at verse 129. We're talking about God pruning, God gardening the garden of our heart. Verse 129 says... Now, you understand this is a song, so someone is singing about whatever we're about to read. Happily singing. 129 says, Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Oh, man, i got to pause here for just a second. I have so much proof that if you study God's word prayerfully, you will do better in school. Amen. I'm encouraged. I, I have proof. I, if you are a student, please, before you open the textbook, open the textbook. I have to continue. 
131. I opened my mouth and panted. Listen to this. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. How many of you long for God's commandments? Amen. Two or three of you. That's wonderful. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look thou, 132, now, now listen, listen to this. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Yeah, aw. <laughs> How sweet, right? 133, order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me, he's asking for deliverance, from, a, from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Precepts as well. 135, make thy face to shine upon thy servant. If you understand, if you understand the 70-week prophecy, this is very, very beautiful. God's face is where his glory is. If his face can shine upon you, you are clean. Yes, amen. Verse 136, rivers of waters run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Do you cry when you... Oh, yeah, good. You're like the psalmist, that's good. When we, if you like to call it, break God's law, it's sad. You realize he came here, lived a perfect life, uh, was teased and bothered and oppressed by peons whom he created out of the dust of the ground, humbly took that, died a humiliating death on the cross, rose from the grave to do a work in the heavenly sanctuary, so certainly it should make us cry if we disobey him. It should. I want you to notice, again, verse 132. Look upon me. So verse 131 talks about, I long to keep thy commandments. And then verse 132 says, Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. You see, God's law and his mercy kiss each other. God's law and his mercy kiss each other. Don't be turned off by the law of God. It's, it's beautiful. According to the psalmist, there are singing hymns and psalms about the law of God in this chapter here, over and over and over again. So there must be something pretty neat about it. Um, John 15, we alluded to earlier, Christ himself calls our attention to the growth of a vegetable of the vegetable world as an illustration of the spiritual life. Uh, when, so the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Savior pervades the soul, renews the motives and action, he changes us from the inside out, and brings even the thoughts into obedience to the will of God, enabling the receiver to bear the precious fruit of the holy deeds. Uh, If you read John 15, I won't read it, 1 through 14, you'll notice that the anointed one, our Savior, actually ties, he ties keeping his instruction with 
loving God and loving man. Doesn't that make sense, though, when you think about it? You remember that all hang on to the love for God and the love for man. We're wrapping up here. The love for God and the love for man hang on to. There are ten that hang on to. The Bible tells us to bind our bind his law on our hands. How many hands do most of you have here? Two. How many fingers? Some people have eight. We have two, well, most people, we have two thumbs. I get you, Laura. <laughs> we have eight fingers and two thumbs. Okay. That's something Kenesha would say. Uh, she's taking her place. She left, stepped out. There she comes. Uh, so, but ten uh, extremity digits. Thank you, Brother Nelson. Help her brother out. Ten digits on our hands. And Ten Commandments. And God says, bind my law on your hands. You have two hands. There are two tables of stone. Two tables of stone. Yeah, I'm not making this up. Two tables of stone. Yep. And two hands and ten digits. Mm -hmm. You know, God made the law, wrote the law on two tables, not because he ran out of room on the first one. He did it intentionally. Yep, he did. He doesn't make any mistakes. Bind the law on your hands. It's funny. Some of us uh, in our culture, in the culture of uh, America, not necessarily our immediate church culture, and uh, across the world, many cultures use wedding rings. What's your ring finger? Which number of fingers is your ring finger? Hold your ring fingers up. Which one? Fourth. Okay, I'll wait for you to <laughs> let that sink in. Okay. All right, now you're coming around. Good. Yeah. God doesn't say, put this thing on your finger to show your faithfulness and dedication to me. He says, I want to put something much more meaningful on your finger. To show that you are mine, I'm going to propose my Sabbath, my rest to you. And I'm going to put my rest on your fourth finger. Did you know God was a romantic? Yeah. What is that one book that people always say? Why is that one in the book? Song of Solomon, yeah, thanks. Yes, what? Yes, S-O-S. Yeah, do you realize Song of Solomon is not about just uh, what it seems to be about on the surface? Mm hmm You know that, right? It's not just about beautiful words between a man and a woman. Who is Christ? Come on, guys, think with me. Love, yeah, love. Groom, groom. God is love. He's groom. He's the groom. Who's his wife? He has proposed to the church. Yeah. We have some issues with him. We're not sure if we want to be dedicated or not, but uh, he has proposed to us. In fact, he calls us his bride. So indeed, he does propose to us with that fourth commandment in particular. Why? Because it's so beautiful. 
take a day off from work. <laughs> is that good? We get 52 holidays every year. If you're a visitor and you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, one of our perks is you get 52 holidays every year. By God. Yeah. By God. Yeah. The best in the whole world. And they're usually very beautiful days, particularly beautiful. I don't know why that is. It's a beautiful, beautiful commandment. He promises that he will return and give us eternal rest. Eternal Shabbat. You see, the day before, the Sabbath is called what? Oh, I'm so happy you didn't say Friday. It's called the preparation. Preparation for what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. So for his holy day. For the day of the Lord. Sabbath is called the day of the Lord. Is there another day of the Lord? No, there's no, no other Sabbath, but there's another day that is, re thank you, brother, but there's, there's another day referred to as the day of the Lord. Yeah, pro probably that will be a Sabbath, too. I don't know. Probably. It'll be a Sabbath somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, preparation day and the Sabbath are kind of uh, practice runs for Judgment Day. You like that? Is that okay? Yeah. Practice. Because he wants you to be ready. You see, he gives us warnings that sometimes are kind of abrasive, but they are a manifestation of his love. Yes, yeah, sometimes a little abrasive, yeah, yeah. But they're a manifestation of his love. If I see a little boy back there, I see Elijah, isn't it? If uh, Elijah were at home with Mark and Selma, and he were about to touch the stove, what do you think Selma would do? The hot stove. You think he would say, she would say, baby, can you please step away from the stove? He, she would snatch him, wouldn't she? Yeah. God wants to pluck or snatch you out of the burning flame. Yes, that's biblical, yeah. We're almost finished, I promise. One half of a page. He works with no wanton hand. So let me back up. The pruning process will cause pain. If you were to look in John 15, you would see that. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that, you know, uh, whom, whom I love is, I purge him and prune him, you know. The pruning process will cause pain, but it is the father who applies the knife. He works with no wanton hand or indifferent heart. He understands what you're going through. I don't care what it is, he understands. Whatever challenges or struggles, temptations, he understands and has the power to deliver you out of those temptations. He works with no wanton hand or indifferent heart. There are branches trailing upon the ground. These must be cut loose from the earthly supports to which their tendrils are fastened. You know, sometimes we have, you know, branches that are, we kind of halfway in the world a little bit, just on one or two or three, five issues. Just, and what happens if you look at a vine or a tree 
some of those branches are withering and they go down to the ground and they suck nutrients from the tree proper despite the fact that they are dead and they put the nutrients into the ground and, the nutri and take it away from the tree or the vine. As in the natural, so in the spiritual. See, God does not want our branches to hang down to the ground, but up towards heaven. He wants your thoughts to be heavenly thoughts. How do you have heavenly thoughts? The Bible has said you are made clean by the word. Study prayerfully God's word. It will clean you. They are to reach heavenward, the branches are. The husbandman prunes away the harmful growth that the fruit may be richer and more abundant. It's a painful process, but it is a loving process. Herein is my Father glorified, Jesus said, that ye bear much fruit. So God desires that we bear much fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of holiness, benevolence, compassion on others, the fruit of obedience to God, the fruit of obedience to your husband. Uh-oh. The fruit of obedience to your wife. You like that one better? <laughs> Yeah, fruit of obedience to God. If your husband obeys God, then you will have no problem submitting to his will. You see, you are representatives of God, husbands. It, you know that, Amen. right? Amen. Okay. Amen. Good. Good. Uh, wives, you know that that. Husbands are representatives. Did you know that wives are representatives, mothers in particular, of God on earth? Yes, in a special way. Even if you don't have children of your own seed. Wives represent, uh, uh, mothers represent, wives represent God on earth. What does this mean? That means don't let your children hear you yelling and screaming at each other. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. That means probably we should not do everything that the world does. Because remember, we can't plant a seed of lies and expect to receive fruit of truth. So American idolatry is probably not something we should watch as Christians. Probably right. Go on. You live by every word, the Bible says, that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. The life of Christ in you produces the same fruits as are in him. Living in Christ, my brother said earlier, adhering to, him, to Christ, supported by Christ, drawing from the nourishment of Christ, him being the vine, you know, you bear fruit after the similitude of Christ. In closing, beloved, I just want to read to you a poem. The poem is entitled, Gardening God's Way. Here is how you garden God's way. Listen to this. Plant three rows of peas. Peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of soul. Plant four rows of squash. 
squash gossip, squash indifference, squash grumbling, squash selfishness. Plant four rows of lettuce. Let us be faithful, let us be kind, let us be obedient, let us really love one another. No, really, really love one another. No garden, of course, should be without turnips, right? Turn up for meetings, turn up for service, turn up to help one another. Water freely with patience and cultivate love. There is much fruit for your garden because you reap what you sow. Please prayerfully study the word of God because you'll be sowing that. We also must have time to conclude our garden. You've got to plant some time. Time for prayer, time for study, time for God, time for each other, and time for friends. And in closing, beloved, I just want to let you know that the immortal gardener, if you allow him to, will prune cut and rake every portion of the garden of our hearts so that we are prepared to enter into his paradise when he returns. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.